chapter 1. We've been, uh, we've, we have begun our series a couple weeks ago, a series called Written So That You May Believe, and uh, what we were attempting to do over probably the course of a decade, uh, different seasons of time, go through a harmony of the Gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're trying to get the glimpses from each author who wrote to different, uh, different target audiences for different reasons and to put those pictures and connections together to give us a big picture, snapshot of, of what, uh, more than a snapshot, a big picture, right, of, of what's going on and who Jesus is. Uh, when we talk about Christ, it's, you know, it's interesting. There are so many different opinions of who he is. And, and last week, uh, you know, we've, we've had a Sunday school class going on uh, with our sermon series for the first three weeks. This is the third and final uh, corporate gathering of Sunday school today. That'll happen at 10 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Uh, but we've, we've met together just to kind of give this fullness and this picture uh, to, to kind of lay a foundation for where we're heading. But it's important to note that as we do this, it, what we're presenting is Jesus Christ. We're presenting Jesus as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. Uh, last week we talked about Him being fully God, that He was pre-existent and had an eternal nature. Uh, and and we looked, looked through John chapter 1. Uh, the week before that, we started in Luke chapter 1 where Luke says, hey, these things are written, right? And, and I'm, I'm writing these things so you can believe. And we talked about that kind of being our theme, also from John 20, that these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And that, that's the theme of, of the scripture, that it's all about the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus, and that we would get to know who he is, see him for who he is, believe in him, and by believing, we would have life in his name. So when Luke writes an orderly account in Luke 1, he's saying, I'm... I'm testing the witnesses. I'm checking the facts. I'm putting together all of the research so that, that this can be presented in a way that can't be refuted. I don't want to be found as a liar or someone that didn't do, do their job. I want to present an orderly account of Jesus so that the things that are written might be believable and by believing you might have life in his name. Again, last week, the greatness of Christ in John 1, seeing that Jesus was fully God. And this week, we transition to, to Christ's ancestry, and we see the humanity of of Christ. So last week was the greatness of Christ. This week is the humanity of Christ. And in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, and, uh, and then go over to Philippians 2, we're going to see that Jesus was not only fully God, but he was also fully man. And, and we're, we're coming to, uh, against a, a culture and even teachings outside of Scripture that would say, no, yeah, Jesus was not fully God, and uh, he, was, he was maybe a created being, and he came to earth and lived a good life and, and did some good things, and ultimately God God elevated him and exalted him to a position, but he still isn't the God. And, and those views are not biblical views. And we, we cannot go to that place and say, I'm going to adopt that as our theology. Uh, and and here's, here's kind of a, a warning for all of us. It, it's as difficult as this is to understand, right? How can somebody, Jesus, be both fully God and fully man? Is, is there a 50-50 thing going on? No, it's 100-100 going on, right? And we, don't, we can't comprehend that. We don't quite get that. So we, we try to rely on our own judgment and our own ability to, to figure it out and to, and to maybe answer that question. And sometimes, that, that's probably oftentimes, that's lacking. Even as I prepare today to preach and as Baba comes later to teach us about this, it's, it's not going to be fully understood because God is not someone that can be fully realized and understood. I mentioned that last week, right? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Uh, the mere fact that He is God and I am not, there should be some mystery about Him. Amen? Because if there's not, I, meant, I said this last week or week before, if there's not any mystery about God and I've got him figured out, then he's really not God, is he? Because I've got him figured out, a mere mortal man like me. A simple, mere mortal man. So today we're going to be looking at his ancestry and 
looking at this, uh, this great, the theologians say it's a great condescension of Christ. And I, I realized that when I read that, I'm like, that seems a little harsh, you know, because when you say something and you put me down, like, that was really condescending, right? You're putting me down. And, and I want you to understand that the, the condescension of Christ is the lowering of Almighty God into humanity, right? He's putting himself down, the great condescension. He's coming to earth. Uh, some of the commentators said that when, when Christ comes to earth, it's like, it's like a powerful bodybuilder, a, a, a power lifter, right? And, and, and he's got this power to lift, but in order to lift, what does the powerful lifter have to do? He has to stoop down and bend down, and then eventually he lifts up whatever he's lifting up, and he, uh, he and it appears again. That's the same with Jesus. Jesus, in this great condescension, did not give up his power as God and authority as God and divinity as God, but he stooped into human history, into humanity, in the form of a man. And in all the strength of God, he carried a load that we could never carry on our own. So that's where we're going to be today. Let's pray and we'll get, get started. Father, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace. We thank you for your word that is living and active. And God, we pray that as we go there today, that you would open our hearts and minds to be receptive to it. And God, we pray that all the time, but God, I pray that you would, you would help us to really believe that and really want that, that we would receive what you have for us today through your word and through your spirit, that you would convict us of sin and that, God, we would desire to not be there anymore and live there anymore, but to live in obedience to you, the Son. And God, that you would conform us into the image of the Son, that we'd look more and more like Jesus, that we'd show and reveal his glory to the world around the glory of Jesus is both God and man who was a substitute and atonement for the sins of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Um, one of the things, you know, this is probably a first for me. I, we tend to pray and then we read the whole text together. I'm not going to read the entire text of Matthew 1, 1 through 18 and, and Luke 3, 23 through 38. It's a long lineage, and, and it's one of the, my other rules sometimes I, I don't want to break, is that the text is written that we might read it. Names are in the Bible so that we might see them and know them. They're there for a reason. And we don't skip over the begotten of, the begotten of, the so-and-so begat, and so-and-so. We don't skip over that stuff because those names are important. But for time's sake and for context's sake today, we're going to see it in a different light, okay? Um, but what I would encourage you to do, what I'd ask you to do, is, is when you go home today with your family and you have the discussion sheet on the back of your notes, and you have this discussion, go and read these texts. Go and, go and open them up and read through them and, and try your best to pronounce the names the best you can because they're really hard to pronounce. The key, again, is speed and confidence. Just pretend you know what you're doing and read through them. But, but look at them and see them for what they are. We're going to kind of pick out a couple of spots in these, these two passages that, that show us uh, the humanity of Christ. So there's two points today to, to, to the sermon today. Number one is this. Uh, the humanity of Christ is in his lineage. We see it in his lineage. And that's what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 1 and then in Luke chapter, chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 1, uh, if you're there, there's a few things I want to just point out, but really it's verse 1. Um, again, Matthew is Matthew's writing his gospel to the Jews, to people who, who understand the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, who understand the lineage of, of the, the Messiah, that they're looking for this. So when Matthew writes, he, he doesn't pull any punches, he starts his gospel out with this. He says this, the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Understand, Matthew, when he wrote that, pulled no punches. It is exactly to his target audience saying that Jesus Christ, the, 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 the book is going to be about, all, all about him, and we've, you've seen him, and you know him, and this is what you did to him, 
but Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes into the lineage. He start, starts with Abraham, and he goes all the way through to, uh, to the Messiah, to Jesus. So you have, you have Abraham right at verse 2. Then you go down to David, right, uh, in King David in verse 6, in verse, uh, verse six, and then it goes all the way down to verse 16, where we see uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Very profound here. Matthew, for us, is setting up an account of Jesus, his ancestry, showing that he is, in fact, born into humanity, right? So there's a humanity of Christ. Uh, but he's, this, this lineage is an emphasis and significance when he mentions those names of Abraham and David. These, these others are, and, and these are all fathers of the faith, right? The church patriarchs here. And, and these are men who God had given an un, unconditional, eternal covenant and promise to throughout the course of history. And that promise was given that not only, and in Genesis we see that too, but the promise was that there would be a Messiah through the line and house of David that would be the seed of Abraham that would be Christ the Lord, that he would be the one that rules and reigns. So when Matthew writes this lineage, he's answering the question that would be posed by the Jews. Okay, here's Jesus, and here's the question. Is Jesus the son of Abraham? And is he of the house of David? They want to know that. And Matthew says, yep, sure is. And, and it gives him the legal descent, the legal descent to be on the throne. He has this authority from God, of course, but he is legally allowed to sit on the throne. Now, Luke, let's go to Luke chapter 3. I told you we wouldn't spend much time there. Luke chapter 3. Uh, we'll note a difference here. Uh, Matthew's genealogy is first thing. It's first off. He wants to set up for his audience, listen, this is, this, we're talking about the Messiah here. We're talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, you, you know him, right? We're talking about Jesus, and he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He has the right to rule and reign. He is the Messiah. And everything I'm going to tell you, and tell you next is built on that foundation. Now, Luke, when he's writing, is, is writing more to, well, to Jews, but also to Hellenistic uh, Greek people, right? So a culture who, who's, who's not so much into uh, necessarily the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of David. They're more into who, who is this person in history and why is there, uh, why is there, why is there authority there or why is there anything we should put, put our, all our chips into, right? A, a basket of Jesus. So we're going to see this. In, go to Luke chapter 3. And, and it's interesting because you have Matthew who starts with Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. So it's like from the past to the present. And Luke swaps that around and he goes, uh, he goes from the present all the way back to the past. And there's a lot of different opinions on this. And I need you to understand a couple of things. When we, when we talk about the lineages of Christ, there's, there's really no definitive this is what it is and what it means when it comes to all these names and some that overlap and some that it doesn't make sense. Why, you know, why, or Matthew left some people out. There were certainly, he wanted to set up a certain amount in each grouping and he left people out in between. So when, he's, when it was you know, the father or, or son of, you see that there might have been, it might have been a grandfather, a great-great-grandfather. He's, he's trying to follow the family tree, the line, the lineage the legal right to the throne. Where Luke is writing more to a group of people who wants to see the physical aspect of this. So there are a lot more names in Luke's account. And there's even a differentiation. Of like, who's, wait, who's the father of Joseph? And there's so many different legal traditions and legal rights that were adopted and, and accepted. Whether you were uh, in, in a Levite marriage where you were, your brother died and his wife was, was widowed and you, your obligation was to take her as a, as a wife and to proceed to, to uh, give her children in the, in the line of your brother. 
Like there, there are all these marriages that happen. And then even the, the, the legal standing of a, of, a, of a stepdad, right? So Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus, right? It was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, but Joseph still was the legal father of Jesus and could, could be listed Joseph, right? Jesus was the son of Joseph. And it could be listed that, that way legally. But there's a different audience here, and there's a different, there's a different grouping. And one of the things I, I, I found really interesting, if you look at Luke chapter 3, you look at, uh, even Luke, let's go to Luke chapter 1 and 2, you see the birth of Jesus, right? You see the, the, this start of a, of a person in history. And you get the birth account, you get the announcements and, and all of this and the birth account, and it, there's just something divine happening here, something special is taking place here, right? And so the readers are like, this is interesting, this is an orderly account, Something special is taking place. They want to hear more. Jesus is then born, and then in verse 3, we see uh, the Messiah is heralded by John the Baptist, and, and eventually we get down to Jesus' baptism in verse 21 of chapter 3. Now, notice how this sets up, because we could just read this genealogy starting in verse 23, but if we look back to verse 21, and, and even the following, seeing the contextualize of how it's set up, there's something special going on here. Look at verse 21 with me. Verse, or verse 21 of chapter 3. So when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And he was praying, as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the physical appearance like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, right? You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. So this is what we talked about last week, the idea of the Trinity. That in one instance in Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present. So we're not modalists. We talked about that. It's not that God can go in a phone booth like Superman and change his identity, come back out, and be the Holy Spirit. He can be omnipresent altogether. They're co-equal. They're different persons of the same one God. They're equal. So they're all there. But he says what? God the Father says, this is my beloved son, right? He claims Jesus as son. This is God's son, and, and he takes delight in him. And the next verse says, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph. Now, why is that important? He was thought to be the son of Joseph. Well, most people didn't believe in, in, a, in a Holy Spirit-type con, uh, conception, right? Like, well, of course, he's the son of Joseph. Everyone just said, Joseph's his dad. Everyone believed that, unless you got really down deep in the story, right? And even then, they're like, well, I don't know if I believe that, so Joseph is his dad. Everyone, it was supposed to be the son of Joseph. But we also see, just preceding this, that Jesus is getting baptized, and the Father from heaven says, this is my son. This is my son, who's thought to be the son of Joseph, but he's really my son. See, there's something special happening. There's something special surrounding Jesus. And then Luke proceeds to, to go through the genealogy of Jesus. And he talks about David, and he talks about Abraham. But he goes down to the very end in verse 38. It says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. The only other place the son of God is mentioned as somebody else is Adam. Why? Because God created Adam. He breathed life into Adam. He formed him out of the dust of the earth. Adam was the son of God, the firstborn, right? Jesus, though, was the divine son of God, God in the flesh. So, and, and the way he ordered this and why he put it in this order, you see that there's a, something special and magical happening about, about Jesus coming and his birth and the announcement of his birth and, and, the, and now his baptism and that he's, he's God in the flesh. And then you see how Jesus is in his uh, genealogy and ancestry is so closely linked here to that baptism and to that special moment of divinity. And as we proceed down the genealogy list and go all the way back to Adam, it gets darker and darker and darker. When we get to Adam, we understand that sin, the sin of Adam, the sin of Eve, cursed us all. And what is, what, what's the next part of this passage? We look at chapter 4. It's the temptation of Jesus. 
So you see that Jesus is more closely situated to his birth and, and baptism and the announcement of the special Messiah, the Son of God, and Adam is more closely positioned to temptation and Satan and the fall. So Luke is structuring this to show there is something special in Jesus that is for all of humanity despite the fall. Luke writes this, this account, this, this genealogy, and he, he mentions Abraham, he mentions David, because that will be of some importance to people as they read. But he mentions Adam, because going back, bef- farther than Jews need to go back, all of humanity knows that Adam was the first man. And that if Jesus came out of the line of Adam, he isn't just for the Jews, he's for everybody. And we saw that in the first week when Luke is writing this account. He's writing that, that all might believe and know Christ, not just the Jews. So Luke's genealogy expands and goes back to Adam, right? And he is, he is of David's line. He is of Abraham's seed. He is relating him to all of humanity. And it is a physical descent. There's a physical birth. We saw that before the, the lineage was even presented. It wasn't the first thing. It, like, it was in Matthew where, first things first, let's get the legal document thing under the way, out of the way. Let's make sure it's, it's legally bound. All right, there it is. Matthew says Jesus is legally the, the rightful heir of the throne. But then when Luke presents, he says, let's, let's present how God came to earth. He was announced and proclaimed and he was born and he was, he was dedicated and he grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And then he was baptized and, and he was proclaimed the son of God. And then they show why. It's for all of humanity. It should be noted also that when Jesus offered himself to Israel as the Messiah, his claim to the Davidic uh, line was something that could be challenged because they could check it and double check it because they had so many records there. Uh, the records were kept, and during that time, if there was a dispute, it would have been cleared up. So when Jesus says, I'm of the line of David, yeah, it, that's, that's true, he's of the line of David, but what people thought is that the Messiah wouldn't just be in the flesh, there would be this powerful ruler, something different, and, and, and that even quoted in Scripture, like, we know where you come from, you come from Nazareth, and no one's going to know where the Messiah comes from, so you must not be him. But he was certainly of Davidic descent. I want to mention something else about the Luke account as well. Uh, there are so many different views of, of what this is and how this interacts. And one of the views I presented last year, and you can go look that sermon up and, and look at it and see why I, I did this. But uh, you'll see there's a curse of Jeconiah that happens in Scripture. And, and Jeconiah was, was one of the sons of David, right? One of the lines of David. And, and the curse came upon him and, and everyone else that no other king out of his line, out of that line, out of that bloodstream of Jeconiah would be able to sit and rule on the throne of David. And what we saw last year, I talked about the, the genealogy of Luke, that, that because it was supposed to be a son of Joseph, and we talked about that next, and if you look at verse 23, son of Joseph, son of Heli, and, and that there's some people that say that maybe that was actually, Heli was Eli, and that was Mary's dad. And that this is actually a genealogy of Mary, a physical bloodline genealogy of Mary. So again, it's physical no matter what, because you're looking at the, for all humanity, uh, out of Adam, out of the seed of Adam, and he is a son of Adam, a son of God. But when you look at the, the Mary bloodline, what Mary did in her bloodline, and she, she could be traced back to, to um, the Davidic line as well, where, where Solomon, you had David and Solomon, and you mentioned this in verse uh, 30. You see, son of David, and that was Nathan, the son of David. Well, in Matthew's account, it's Solomon there. So somewhere the family tree splits and goes a different direction and starts talking about different people. And the thought there was that, well, let's leave Jeconiah out of this altogether because he's cursed. But let's show that, that he still has a legal right because of, he's of the house and line of David. He's of the seed of Abraham. We see that in Matthew. He has a legal right. 
but does he have the physical blood rights? And if, if, if this is the line of Mary, more of a physical bloodline of Mary, you can see how it circum, circumnavigates around Jeconiah and goes through Nathan and goes down through Mary, and then he is actually blood, blood legal right to the throne. So that was another, another uh, hypothesis of this, this ancestry. But either way, it's expressing the humanity of Christ and both his legal right and his physical right to be on the throne. That's what you need to know. That's what you can write in your notes. That's, that sums it all up for that. So number two, let's go to number two. We'll spend the majority of our time here now, or the rest of our time here. The humanity of Christ was seen in his humility. Number two is his humility. And we're going to look at several aspects of his, of his humility. So now what we need to do is turn from the Gospels, and we're going to go to the account, or, or to the epistle of Philippians that Paul wrote to the Philippians, if you turn there with me. So we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and Romans, and First and Second Corinthians. Then we're going to get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, here we have a beautiful picture, kind of a diamond in the rough, and it just it shines brightly and profoundly about presenting Jesus and, and, and G- Jesus and this awesome miracle of Christianity. He, Paul is, again, he's describing the condescension of Christ, the lowering of God the Son into humanity. He would be born and he would live and he would die in human form in order to provide redemption for mankind. Now, although it describes the incarnation of Christ in a beautiful way, and we're going to spend most of our time there, we need to understand that he wrote this to the Philippian church, to believers there, and, and the preface was that we want, I want your attitude to be the same as Jesus. So for you and I as believers in Christ, we can see the humility of Christ in this passage and say, I want to aspire to that. I want to be more like that. And that's what the Philippian church would have done as well. He would say, hey, I want you to be more like Jesus. Let's look at him. Let's take a look at who he was and, and the greatest form of humility seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived out, lived out humble uh, self-denial, right? He lived out self-sacrifice, a selfless love, and it was all in obedience and submission to the Father. So you and I are to adopt, adopt the same attitude. So let's look at this passage. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8 together. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, there, there's the preface. Here's what, the attitude we want to have. Well, let's see the attitude that Jesus had. Let's see the example that Christ was for us. Who, that's Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we'll stop there. You can read that more for context later and, and read the rest of it. It's actually in your discussion notes to read more of that. But I want to look at three different aspects of his humility as we see in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. The first aspect we have uh, about his humility is it's in heaven toward the Father. Jesus has humility to the, towards the Father, and he's in heaven. And, and how, how is that possible? Well, here's how that's possible. Jesus is co-equal with the Father. And the Spirit is co-equal with the Son. And they are all co-equally God and eternally God, immutable and, and, and majestic and omniscient and omnipotent. All of, those, all of those facts are about God, the essence of the nature of God. And that's who Jesus is. We talked a lot about that last week. If you weren't here, check that out. But he is God. So how is there humility towards the Father in heaven? Well, we see that, that he was existing in the form of God, right? He says, adopt the attitude of Christ, who, existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. So he was in the Godhead, and he knew there was a mission that had to be accomplished that the Father wanted to send him on. 
So what did Jesus, the Son, the co-equal of the Father and Spirit do? He humbled himself and said, I'll become obedient to that. I'll become obedient to the will of the Father. I will, I will although I exist in the form of God, and this word form is morph, and it, it, the, the whole word, and it, this, is, this is what's important about this word. There are other Greek words like schema that can be used to, to say form. And, and a schema is more like an outer appearance. Like one day I painted my house red, and the next day I painted my house as black. And it was just a schema. But that, the house, the form, is still a house. There's concrete, there's a, there's a the foundation, and there's studs and walls, and, and everything's where it, where it needs to be. The essence of a building is still the building. We have the essence of God is still God, and we see in a minute the essence of man is still man. It's not like we're just changing forms, outer appearances. We're actually essence. So when he says the existing in the form of God, and Paul, and Paul knew as he wrote this that there would be, there would be some like lashing out, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is he, is he, maybe he's not fully God because he, he was existing in that form. Well, wait, no, form, form means total the essence. He existed in the total, equal essence in nature as God. Not something else, not a created being, but as God. And he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. So from his exalted position as God, Jesus humbled himself. And he refused to hold on to the divine rights and prerogatives that he, had, he, is, he was entitled to. His divinity. He, he, he just said, you know what, I'm going to let go of these powerful things I have and, the, and, and this ability, to, or not, not the ability, and, and my nature, I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to enter into humanity emptying myself and becoming a servant. I, I, last night I was in bed, of course, I'm always thinking about this stuff, and I thought about an analogy that really works well for me. Anyone seen the, the, the TV show Undercover Boss? Raise your hand. Undercover Boss. Okay, half of you. It, it's, it's exactly what it says. It's the CEO of McDonald's or where, whatever corporation you know goes undercover and works as like the lowliest servant in one of their chains or franchises or, or part of their business. At no time is that boss not the boss. Do we understand that? At no time does, does he stop being the CEO and in charge of everything. But when he or she are in those, those workforces, when they're there, they, they do not consider, consider equality as a CEO something to be exploited. I'm not going to Get, and there's lots of times, you watch the show, there's lots of times you'll see this, the CEO working and you'll see people treating other people poorly and this, this is why this restaurant's going downhill. And they, like, inside, like, they want to do something. They want to say, you're fired, I'm the boss. And they don't, they just kind of wait till the end of the show and it's the reality. But during the time, they, they humble themselves and they become a servant and take it in and, and do what they can to serve. And I really thought that was a great analogy because they don't stop being the CEO. We think that, well, Jesus came into humanity. He, he had to stop being the CEO. No, he didn't. No, nothing about Scripture says he stopped being God Almighty. In fact, if he stopped being God, how could he conquer death for us? He did not stop being God. He never minimized his deity. His divine power and authority was fully intact, yet he did not use it for personal advantage. When God in Christ took flesh, he willingly suffered the worst possible humiliation. He became a man finite, right? Able to be hurt and bleed, to be tempted as we are. And he did that rather than demand his, his honor and privilege and glory that were rightly his. He refused to cling to that favored position as the divine son. He humbled himself. I, I want to read a couple of different passages just to kind of give you a context of this. 
Matthew 4, 3. This is the tempter approached him, right? This is Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. The tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, saying so, he looks at him and says, hey, since you're God in the flesh, since you're fully God, and you're out here being tempted like a man because you're fully man, since you're fully God, he says, why don't you tell these stones to become what? Bread. Why would Satan tempt Jesus with something that he couldn't do? God in the flesh could turn rocks into bread. He did not lose his power as CEO, right? He did not lose his power or divinity as God. Then later on in Matthew 26, uh, the, the, the uh, leaders come to arrest Jesus in the garden, right? And, Je- and, and Peter's there. He takes out his sword, right? He says, put your sword away or put it back in its place. All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. And then he says, or do you not think, here's, here's what he tells Peter and the rest of him. He says, do you not think that I can call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? He's like, did you forget that I'm God? Did you forget that I could make this all go away right now with just the words out of my mouth? Don't try to go to my defense and, and raise the sword. You, you don't need to do that. I could, I could handle my own cause. Why? Because I'm God in the flesh. But he didn't use that as something to be exploited. He says, how then would Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? See, Jesus knew as God what had to be accomplished as a man. And although fully God, he emptied himself of certain aspects of deity, but not deity itself. And I know that's, that's strange to hear. I want to read a, a passage out of John 17. This is Jesus' great high priestly prayer. J- Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. So he's talking about the glory of God. And, and later on in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory. It's not just like, hey, I did a really good job. I need the attaboy now. Give me me my gold star, God. I'm a created being, maybe an angel, make me a little bigger, exalt me in some way. Jesus says, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. This is what it means when when he's emptying himself, when he decides to to become a man and become a servant, when he doesn't doesn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He says, I'm going to release the right that I have in the divine realm in those ways. And now he's saying, hey, it's time to get him back. I want that, I, I'm going to have that glory again before the world existed. So the first aspect of his humiliation or his humility was in heaven toward the Father. He said, I, I want to do your will. I want to I release this to you, and you can give it back. Uh, all throughout Scripture, we see uh, times where Jesus does what the will, the will and work of the Father, right? He, he's submissive to that. When he goes and prays in the garden, he says, God, if there's any way for this cup to be removed, I want to I do that. But, but he said, no, not my will, what? Your will be done. He's submissive to the will. That's in his humility. He submits and surrenders to the will of the Father as he becomes a man. So we see it in, in heaven towards the Father. We see his humility also, point B here, is in the incarnation. We see his humility in the incarnation. We, we kind of foreshadowed this and mentioned already. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into, into humanity as a human, as flesh and blood. He emptied himself. And and, and again, the greatest humiliation for God is become human being. The infinite, immutable, omnipresent God of the universe, almighty God, says, I'll, I'll become a human. And not even just a human, but the worst kind, the worst regarded kind of human being. Philippians 2, 7 said he emptied himself. And there are some things that he emptied himself of. I, wanna, I want us to understand. He did not empty himself of his divinity, but some divine attributes. And here's what, here's what he forsook. He, he said, I'll, I'll set these aside willingly. His divine glory. 
We mentioned that a minute ago, right? He, he set his divine glory aside. That, that, and there were a couple times that we see, or at least one, the transfiguration. Right? He takes Peter, James, and John and says, let's go up on the mountaintop. I'm going to show you who I really am. He's like, whoa! He's like this light, this glorious, glorious Christ. He's God Almighty right there. But while he was on earth, he set that aside. He set that aside, his divine glory. He set aside the face-to-face divine authority he had. Remember last, last week or week before, we talked about, the, I think it was last week, this face-to-faceness of God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are with God. And that's a face-to-face relationship. There's a, there's a communion there, a unity there, an intimacy that's there that existed before we ever were even a glimmer. And Bubba talked about so, so well the idea that, that God in his love would not know how to love unless there was an object to love. And before there was just God, it was God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who hadn't shared that love and unity together. And then he created us to be an object of that love as well, a love that he knew all too well. The incarnation, he emptied himself of that face-to-face divine authority. Jesus had his own will, his own right, his own authority. He could do whatever he wanted to do. But he decided to say, I'm not going to have that communion with the Father face-to-face. Right? He, he died on the cross. He says, why have you what? Forsaken me? Why am I separated? Why am I not with the, with the Spirit and with the Father right now face-to-face? Because the incarnation, in the, in the incarnation, he humbled himself. He also emptied himself of eternal riches. God doesn't need anything. He lacks for nothing. He and himself, in, in with Father, Son, and Spirit, are totally sufficient. And, and all the riches of glory belong to him. When he came into humanity, he came as a poor boy born in a stable, in a manger, laid in a manger. Poorest of poor, he gave up eternal riches. He says he assumed the form of a servant. This word form is the same we used earlier, morph. He became the very essence and nature of a bond servant. He said, I'm laying aside myself, my own prerogatives, my own rights, my own eternality in the sense of, of my, my position, and I am going to, and my, I still have my divinity intact, but I am taking on not only my existing in the form of God, I, 100%, I am also now 100% the form of a servant, a person in humanity. And he uses the word bond servant for servant, and that's that, that idea of I, I'm going I'm to willingly lay down my life. I'm going to willingly lay down my wants, my desires for someone else. A bond servant, here's what a bond servant does. They carry the burdens of other people. They carry the workload, the burdens of other people. Jesus carried the burden that no other man could carry. It was a sin burden for all who would believe. So Jesus as a man came in the flesh fully man to carry this burden that a man, a human being had to carry. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and the wages of sin is death. And there must be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But if he was just man, only man, he would have had to die for his own sins. He wouldn't have been able to atone for yours and mine. But because he was God in the flesh and he was sinless, he was able to claim his divinity, go to the cross, be crucified and killed because he's fully man, but then rise from the dead three days later because he's fully God. Only because he's fully God could he conquer Satan, sin, and death once and for all. And only because he's fully man could he actually be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that was placed on the cross to bleed for us and to die for us. He is both fully God and fully man. It's so important for us to understand it does not mean his, his condescension into humanity does not mean that he let go of his divinity or being eternally God. All four Gospels make it clear he did not forsake his divine power, right, to perform miracles, to forgive sins, or to know the hearts and minds of people. We see glimpses of when he's omniscient and omnipresent, when he, he, he reveals the hearts of people. This is his, his divinity. 
It's because he's eternally God. Had he stopped being eternally God, he wouldn't be able to conquer death for us. And he, had he not been fully human, he would not have been able to die for us and sympathize with us in our temptation. Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet has been without sin. That's the conquering God in, in the, the human, humanity of Christ, saying, I'll, I'll be tempted. I'll, I'll, that's, I'll, I'll understand and be able to sympathize with you in this weakness. But because I'm God, I will not sin. Isaiah 53 tells us, and I would read Isaiah 53 at home tonight as well, why? He said, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he, he was made, I'm sorry, this is 2 Corinthians. Uh, he made the one who did not know sin, so, so God the Father in his wisdom made the one who did not know sin, the Son, to be sin for us. There's the condescension of Christ, the humanity of, of Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because, because God's righteousness was present in Jesus Christ because Jesus was fully God. But the sin was also placed on him because he was fully man. And, and why? Because we have all gone astray. We, we, we can't pay for our own sin and be with God forever. It's, it, we, have, we have hell to pay. But Jesus paid that anyway. Isaiah says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him, that is Jesus, for the iniquity of us all. He punished him. He put on Jesus' flesh and blood and his humanity the penalty for us all. Turn to Hebrews with me, chapter 2. I want to see one more glimpse of this in this section. Hebrews chapter 2. Looking at verses 14 through 18 together. Talking about this reason that he had to be flesh and blood. He had to be 100% man. He wasn't just a form. Now listen, last week we talked about this in Sunday school. Uh, you know, Bubba presented these times where God the Son manifests himself in physical form in the Old Testament. We see, we've seen it before we get to the New Testament. We've seen Jesus. So God the Son can manifest himself in that form as, as the, the uh, commander of the Lord's army, as, as the, the one that was in the, the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, who wrestled with Jacob, right? There's these, these forms of, that Jesus takes and he manifests himself in those ways. But now it's, it's, he has to become flesh and blood. He has to take on the essence and nature of humanity, the form, and that appearance so that he could die. Now it says in verse 14 of chapter 2 in Hebrews, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, this is talking about the children of God, those who belong to God, Jesus also shared in these. Oh, so he shared flesh and blood. Why? So that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and to free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear and death. Now I want you to understand this, fear of death. The, the ones that were held in slavery are you and I. Why? Because we can't conquer death. We deserve it. But he put on flesh and was fully God and fully flesh so that he could die and free us. He could conquer the devil and then free us who were, who were held in slavery. Verse 16, for it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels but to help Abraham's offspring, you and I. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make an atonement for the sins of the people. This is, this is what Jesus did. He said, I'm, I'm going to be that great high priest. I'm going to be the high priest that can go into the Holy of Holies. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to lay myself down as the sacrifice on the altar so that when I bleed out, when I die, that's a once and done sacrifice for the people. Why? Not because I was just flesh and blood, but because I was also fully God. 
but it had to be flesh and blood to be poured out. It's in his incarnation. Because, because, of, our, our, because of our sin, God had to take the, the penalty as fully God. Right? So he, fully God, could die, fully man, and conquer death for us. Why? Well, the wages of sin is death. And we see his humility finally in his death. That's little c underneath number two. His, humil- his hu- humanity is seen in humility in his obedience to death. Philippians, back to Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Turn to John 10 with me. John chapter 10. show you the, the humility and the willingness in Jesus to die. We're in John 10, looking at verses 17 and 18 together. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus, listen, Jesus' aim was to die. His aim was to be be obedient to the Father, to go to the cross, and to willingly lay his life down on that cross. Just as he told Peter, don't you think I'm God? Don't you remember I'm God? I could call all my angels right now to save me. Save from what? Save from the arrest? Yes, but save from crucifixion? Absolutely. No one killed Jesus. He gave his life for us. Willingly. And that shows his great humility. In humanity, he comes down in the flesh, and in humility, he says, I will lay down this flesh that I've taken on, and I'll lay it down for you. Matthew 28, 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. He came to die. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, everyone, or uh, written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. We see this amazing glory of God in the form of the Son condescending with his, his eternal nature and divinity intact, but becoming a servant, stooping down, like again, like that, that power lifter stoops down to powerfully, powerfully lift. Like, like the undercover boss who doesn't leave his CEO or leave his CEO ness, right, and his, his ability to be the boss, but he humbles himself. Jesus humbled himself and entered humanity in order to, the, to go to the ultimate humility of being crucified. I want to read just one more passage for you today out of Romans chapter 11. Again, this, this is to help us sum up this mystery. and let, let the mystery be okay, be in the mystery of how, how is Jesus, how is God fully God and fully man at the same time? We may not know the mystery of that, but we know it's rich, and we know he had to be fully God, and he had to be fully man in order to provide the atonement and the victory over death. Romans 11, 33 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, untraceable his ways. For who has man, who, uh, who has man known, or who has known the mind of the Lord, uh, or who has been his counselor, And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory 
forever. Amen? Listen, in the act of infinite condescension, Jesus left the glory of heaven and the privilege of face-to-face communion with the Father and Son. He willingly emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant and became obedient to death so that we might live. Remember that these are written so that we might believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and by believing, we would have life in his name. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you so much for your gracious love to us. That, God, you came fully divine, fully God, but took on full flesh and full humanity for us. And, Father, that that will be a great mystery. We we praise you for that. We understand the necessity that that you had to be fully God and fully man. In order to, to, to die, you had to be fully man. In order to rise from the dead and actually be victorious over sin and death, you had to be fully God. So we, we praise you for that. Although we may not totally understand, let us not make you less than you already are. By just claiming you're a created being, by just claiming you're, you're only a man, that you are divine. And you thought of us when you died. That you would redeem us from our sin, that you would Let us continue to be the object of your greatest love. We thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close, we'll close with a song, and it's a song of time of worship, that we can worship and respond to the Lord from from his word and what we've learned and gleaned. Maybe you need prayer. I'd be happy to pray with you. I'll be down front here, uh, willing to pray for you if you need some prayer. But whatever God's doing, however he's stirring in your heart, just respond now as we sing.